Thank you for joining us for episode 434 of Live Happy Now. We've become more comfortable with talking openly about mental health, but we're still reluctant to talk about mental illness. Since September is Suicide Prevention Month, we wanted to open up that conversation on this important topic. I'm your host, Paula Phelps, and this week I'm talking with Gabe Howard, author, speaker, and host of the Inside Mental Health podcast by Healthline Media. After being committed to a psychiatric hospital in 2003, Gabe was diagnosed with bipolar and anxiety disorders, and today he uses his experience to help others navigate and understand that difficult path. Gabe is here to talk about not just his journey, but to help the families and friends of people who are struggling with mental illness. Let's have a listen. Gabe, thank you so much for being on the show today. Paula, thank you so much for having me. You know, you have done so much to create awareness around mental illness and really challenge the stigma that's associated with it. I don't know that there's any individual out there who's approaching it the way that you are. And so before we really get into this conversation, why don't you give us a little bit of your backstory and tell us about your journey? I was diagnosed with bipolar disorder at 26 after being committed to a psychiatric hospital. And if you would have asked me, well, hell, an hour before I was committed to a psychiatric (laughs) hospital, if I had any mental illness, I would have been like, no, I'm just fine. My background is I didn't know what mental illness was. And I believed all the stigma and the stereotypes. Mentally ill people are violent. Mentally ill people rock back and forth and drool. They're antisocial. They're, they're, They're psychotic. They look a certain way. They come from bad homes. And I always like to remind people of that one right there. Because my home life was stable. My Mm -hmm. mom and dad loved me very much. They were engaged and care. You know, I always say the worst thing my parents ever did to me in my childhood was give me a younger brother and a sister. (laughs) I'm sure they love hearing that. (laughs) I know. I always pause for laughter there. But sincerely, but when people hear my story, they want it so desperately to hear that my father is an alcoholic and that my mother sat on the couch eating bonbons and beat us or that they were disengaged or, or that, that we were homeless or that we didn't have health insurance. They, they want these things so desperately because then it's a protective factor, right? If they keep their homes in order, their children will be safe. And unfortunately, that's not the reality. And people believe that it's the reality. So if they have a, a good, stable, caring home life, they don't see it in their children. They don't see it in their spouses. They don't see it in their friends and family, siblings, et cetera. They're like, hey, we're all good and we all love each other. So whatever's wrong with you is probably your fault and we don't have to pay attention to it. And this becomes really, really problematic because it allows really sick people like me to go without care and help. Well, what was it that triggered you being institutionalized? How did that manifest itself? And as you said, even an hour before you were committed, you wouldn't have thought you had mental illness. What was it that was that breaking point? I thought about suicide as far back as I can remember. When I was five years old, thought about suicide. 10 years old, thought about suicide. Teenage years, young adult. So I thought it was normal. That's really the key that I want your listeners to focus on. When you are born thinking a certain way, when you are born with your brain working a certain way, you have no reason to believe that that's aberrant or an illness process or sick or different. When I looked out in the world, I thought that everybody was contemplating the pros and cons of life or death. I thought that everyone was suicidal. I thought that everyone's brains worked this way. So when my parents punished me and said, like, you're bad, I believed that I was bad. I believed it was a behavioral issue just like they did. And where this is going is that by the time I was 26 years old, I just thought it was bad. 
I thought I was bad. My parents reinforced that I was bad. I was constantly being punished. Society wasn't happy with me. I was going through a divorce. So I decided, you know what? I tried. I tried. So remember that decision I've been contemplating literally my whole life. Mm-hmm. I decided that now was the time. I made a suicide plan. And luckily, luckily, someone caught on. Someone who suffers from depression herself, someone who's taken psychology one-on-one, somebody was raised by a psychiatric nurse. Her her mom was a psychiatric (laughs) nurse. So she just had a lot of the pieces of the puzzle that my family, friend, and support group lacked. So she spotted it. She did the right things. And she ultimately drove me to the hospital where I was committed, diagnosed. And I I like to say that that began my four-year epic battle against bipolar disorder. So how long ago was that? What kind of a, a time frame are we talking about? I was 20 about? years ago. I am now 46 years old. All right. So how did it go from your being institutionalized to you have this journey, this four-year journey, and how did it then become a point where you were comfortable enough to talk about not just other people's mental illness, but your own mental illness? It went slowly. The example that I always use is true crime. I love true crime. America loves true crime. And everybody listens to this like, you know, few hour podcast or or watches a a one hour television show. And they're like, wow, that's an amazing story. And, And we all tell like these details of the story and we love it. But you ever actually look at the dates? The date from the <laughs> like crime till ending, yeah, is three years, five years, 10 years. So we were somehow able to take what what is five years or a decade or 15 years of, of a bunch of people's lives and boil it down to the high points that took an hour. Mm-hmm. That is how my story with mental illness goes, of course. So the first thing I want to say is, you know, I'm about to wrap up four years in, in like two minutes. So I don't know that it does it justice because four years is a really long time to be suffering and having ups and downs and trial and errors and goods and bads. I tried a lot of medications. I, I tried a lot of therapy. I, obviously I was, I was in the hospital. Then I went to a step-down unit. That's a step-down unit is where you sleep at home, but you spend eight hours a day in the hospital. It's sometimes referred to as intensive outpatient therapy or outpatient therapy. And it, And I did all of these things and it took a really, 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 really long time there. That was like two minutes. Did you have support during that time? Was your family supportive? What kind were your friends? Because I feel that's kind of important to know. Many of my friends were gone. Many of my friends, they bought into the, you know, Gabe's just a jerk face. They weren't buying it. They judged me by my behavior and my behavior, make no mistake, was awful. It was awful. The way that I treated them, I lied to them. I was, I was, I was manipulative. I was not there for them. So they moved on because who wants a friend like that? My first wife, the exact same way. I cheated on her. I was dishonest with her. I was not a good husband and she left as well, but I had my family, you know, moms and dads, they are much, much, much harder to push away. My family got on board very quickly. Parents or family members, if they have someone they're dealing with, it's difficult. As you noted, it's, it's difficult to help someone who is going through this. So how important is it? for them to be able to rally around you and probably get their own support to deal with whatever they're dealing with, with their family member. That's definitely one of those, how much time do you have? Yeah. (laughs) So many family members are just like, you know what, to hell with you. I'm done. I'm not helping you anymore. And while I was going through it, I did not realize that that was a possibility. It never even occurred to me that my parents would abandon me. That's that's how good they did. And it, I now realize that that's like super, I call it luck. 
right? My mom and dad don't refer to it as luck. They're just like, we would never abandon you. We don't care what you do. But listen, there's so many families out there that get fractured and broken. As I point out all the time when I'm talking to people, my parents had other kids. They couldn't just abandon my brother and sister to save me. So it's possible that they might have had to stop helping me so that they could start helping my brother and sister. Uh, fortunately, my brother and sister did not need the kind of support and time that I needed. Paula, if I can explain anything to your audience and get them to take it away. It's that families are super complicated and many families, they suffer and they cannot withstand the storm that is untreated, serious and persistent mental illness. And it fractures them and it breaks them up and it costs people everything. To answer your specific question about how important it is, it's vital. How does a family get help? They're putting so much of their time and their resources into getting through this difficult situation and this difficult time. And it's such a long journey. So where do they find support and understanding of what's going on? There's so many places they can find support. So many family members don't realize that they need support. There is a magic duo, right? They're in Las Vegas. They're super famous. They've been famous for 35 years named Penn and Teller. Oh, uh, I got to love you them. Have heard of Penn and Teller? Oh, love them. I love Penn and Teller, but Teller, he is referred to as the little guy, right? That's like, you know, if, if you say Penn and Teller and you can't remember, it's like, oh, I saw these magicians. There was like a big guy and a little guy. And that's how they're always <laughs> referred. The little guy, the little guy, the little guy, the little guy. Teller is six foot three. He is taller than the average male in America by a huge margin. I think the average height for a man is, is what, like 5'11", six foot, mm -hmm. you know, some, somewhere in that range. And he is three inches taller than that, four inches, five inches. But you know why he's called the little guy? Because he spent his career standing next to six foot eight Penn Gillette. So it's all about perspective. <laughs> and I, I always give this example because so many family members, they see their mentally ill loved one and they think that they have no problems. They personally, the family members believe that they have no problems because after all, when you're standing next to someone who is serious and persistent mental illness, your mental health issues look small. But here's the fact. Teller from Penn and Teller is not the little guy. He is tall. He is taller mm -hmm. than the average. That is a fact. Here's another fact. Your mental health issues don't change because someone is sicker. One, that's just the suffering Olympics. But two, this is where perspective is really, really important. You can be having a serious mental health crisis. And just because your loved one is having a serious and persistent mental illness issue or illness or disorder or problem doesn't change yours. I don't mean to beat this into the ground. But so many people believe in these families that they don't need help because they need to be helping someone else. And here's where this is dangerous. Do you want somebody to come and save you that is suffering from a mental health crisis? If you were in trouble, do you want the person who shows up to be suffering from a mental health crisis when they are here to save you? No, you want the person who shows up to save you to be firing on all cylinders, to be 100%, to be well-rested, well-slept, have control of their faculties and be in, in a good working order. That's what we want. But so many family members don't think they need therapy. They don't think that they need help. They don't think that they need to go to a support group. They don't think that they need to take a class. They don't need think that they need to talk to their general practitioner. They don't even think they need to take a break. They don't even think that they need to step away from the situation for a day or two so that they can gain perspective and get well rested and come back. They believe that they have to be helping their mentally ill loved one 100% of the time, always and forever with zero breaks. 
This is a recipe for disaster and failure, but it's what the average person believes. And listen, Paula, if you ask any mom, if it's okay to leave your child alone for a couple of days to recharge, almost every single mother would say, absolutely not. Absolutely not. No, no, no. I I hear it all the time. And all I can think is, wow, that's, I I, I get it. Like you're a really good mom. Like I love you and I want to hug you, but you're actually making the situation worse for everyone and you don't even realize it. You know, we had a guest on recently, Dr. Laura Phillips, and she's with the Child Mind Institute. And she said a great thing where she said, self-care is child care. And I love that because her whole point is you've got to take care of yourself first so that you can be whole and present for your child. And that's exactly what we're talking about. She sounds like she can say things shorter than I can. And that's just a skill that I do not have. But yes, 100%. One of the things I'd like to say to all of the moms out there, all of the parents out there, all of the frontline caregivers for teenagers, young adults, et cetera, is it doesn't have to be you. I know that's a hard thing to hear, but you know, sometimes you got to call the favorite aunt. You got to call grandma and grandpa. You got to call the trusted friend and you got to say, look, I need you to step in. I I need you to step in and take my child for the weekend. I need you to talk to them. I need you to go to the doctor's appointment. I need you to help me. And many times these people are like, yeah, I just, I just didn't want to offend you by offering my help because that's another problem we have in our society. When we see parents struggling, we don't want to walk up and say, Hey, mom and dad, you seem to be struggling with your young adult or your teenager or your toddler or whatever. Let me step in because then, Oh, you think I'm a bad mom. You think I'm a bad dad. You, you think we're bad parents. You're judging us. So we, we've been so trained not to offer any assistance. And then parents have been so trained not to ask for any assistance. And this is the literal equivalent of everybody sitting inside the burning house, not knowing what to do. The answer is so simple. Call the fire department, get out of the house. Actually, I've said that wrong. Get out of the house, call the fire department. But imagine <laughs> if the messaging was muddled. Hey, if your house catches on fire, that's your responsibility to put out. Well, hey, if you see a house on fire, you got to give the parents a chance to put it out themselves. You don't want to usurp their power. You don't want to make them look bad in front of their kids. And then in the meantime, we just have all these houses burning down and all these people getting third degree burns or worse because we don't want to hurt anyone's feelings. We have to get away from that. Mental illness thrives in this atmosphere because it can run around unchecked. It can do whatever I want. It, it's difficult to ask for help. It's difficult to offer help. I understand, but I'm telling you, it pays huge dividends for families, huge. And one thing that's so different now than when you started this 20 years ago is that we didn't talk about mental illness. We didn't talk about anxiety. We didn't talk about schizophrenia. We didn't talk about bipolar. It was whispered. So what has changed? And how has that helped get treatment out there? And just how has it helped just being able to talk about it? If we continue as a society to become more comfortable talking about it, how is that going to change the way we can manage it? Because obviously, if you don't have to hide it, you can do so many different things with it. The faster you get to care, the better your odds are. And, and that's not a mental health thing. That's just a fact. That's just a health thing. It's true in physical health. It's, it's true in mental health. It's true in physical and mental health. It's just, it's just true everywhere. So if people were willing to talk about it, I'm going to use myself. I'm going to make sure that I'm using myself as an example. 
I used to cry myself to sleep at night all the time, but I grew up in the eighties and I absorbed these messages that men are strong. Men are stoic. Men don't cry. So I told no one. I, I didn't tell anybody I was crying myself to sleep. I was ashamed and I was embarrassed. Now I find out years later that had I told my parents this, they would have asked why, what's going on? What's the problem? They would have been extraordinarily open, extraordinarily supportive. They would, they would have gotten me all kinds of help. And in fact, when, when they finally figured this out, they, they did in fact take me to a therapist. They took me to the school psychologist so I could talk to about this. So I was 16 years old. I'd been exhibiting this behavior for a decade before I got even the most remote assistance at all. And they feel bad about this. But the message of men are strong and I'll give you something to cry about was oh, so yeah. there. It was there. Men my age understand this. Adults my age understand this. So just imagine if when I was, you know, seven, eight, nine, 10 years old, I've been like, I cry every day. Well, what's wrong? I don't know. Well, let's talk about this. And I could have just had an open, I, I might not have needed therapy. I might, I probably would have, because, you know, the bipolar disorder was there, but I imagine that there are just so many people, so many teenagers who are exhibiting, I, I don't want to call them mild because they're on the spectrum from, you know, suicidality to crying yourself to sleep, you know, crying is sort of a beginning symptom, right? And there's got to be so many people who are experiencing depression, crying themselves to sleep at night, and they tell no one. If they could tell people, they could get support, they could get intervention sooner, and this would be so much better, so much better right? A stitch in time saves nine. That's what my grandmother says. I think it's an old timey analogy, but it works. I love it. I love it. Just faster is better. Before I let you go, what is it that you most hope that you'll accomplish by bringing topics related to mental illness out into the open and really opening up that dialogue? I look at my family a lot. Remember what I said, my family were good, stable, engaged, loving parents that created a beautiful home. And yet they missed it all. They believe the stereotypes and they did not have the information that they needed. And this could have cost me my life and it could have cost them their child. It could have cost my brother and sister, their brother, my grandparents, their grandson. The devastation of my suicide would have rippled throughout my family and friends forever. And this is from a family that I know was doing everything. I don't have to guess. I know they did everything they thought was right. What I think about all the time is the fact that they did everything they thought was right. If they would have known it was wrong, they would have done something different. I hope to reach those families who are doing everything they think is right and just letting them know, hey, instead of doing this, do this. And here's why. Because these families, they're ready and they're willing and they're able and they're trying. They are doing everything they can for their children. And what makes it horrible for me is knowing that it's it's not going to be enough. I want to make sure that everybody understands in mental health that for all of the people who are ready, willing, and able to do the right thing, do this. Do this instead. Have this knowledge instead. Understand this instead. And that would have saved my family so much, so much, so much, so much suffering, so much grief, so much unhappiness. And as I point out, I, I, I ended up okay. In the end, it, it, it all turned out okay. Well, Gabe, you're doing tremendous work. You're putting so much good out in the world and so much educational value. On the landing page, we're going to let people know how they can link directly to you, listen to you. And I thank you for coming on the show and talking about it today because it is a super important topic. And I'm so glad to be able to share it with our listeners. Well, thank you so much. I, I really appreciate your time and energy and effort and everything that you do. 
That was Gabe Howard talking about mental illness. If you'd like to learn more about Gabe and his podcast or follow him on social media, just visit us at livehappy.com and click on the podcast tab. That is all we have time for today. We'll meet you back here again next week for an all new episode. And until then, this is Paula Phelps reminding you to make every day a happy one.